Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Biblically Speaking, the podcast. I'm your host, Jared Boldman, and I am here with my good friend, Brian Tiberius Haynes. That's right, or Bear Summoner, if you want to call him that. And today, we're doing a follow-up from last week's podcast. It was one that generated quite a bit of interest. It's gotten a lot of traffic on YouTube and Facebook and also just on the podcast airwaves, where we were talking about should Christians boycott should Christians protest? And uh, I think we had probably more, uh, fewer detractors than we did supporters, but it did bring out some interesting takes. And one of those questions that came up, Brian, is how should Christians talk about the LGBTQ movement in the middle of Pride Month? So I know that that's frustrating to a lot of people. I know it's frustrating to me that uh, to to celebrate sexual behavior and the celebration of that that activity as a culture is somewhat strange and to a degree it's uniquely american that you don't really see as big a deal about this in other places overseas and it and it does feel like the forcing of an agenda on our people and one of the things that we talked about let's see i don't remember if it was the biblically speaking podcast or the man up podcast is that there is an agenda that we you can see that it's targeting children with this stuff so let me open this up and let's just kind of bat this around a little bit and it comes to comes to these kinds of issues, should we speak about them? Are we bigots if we speak about them? And if we do we do need to speak about them, what are some biblical principles we got to keep in mind? Let's just sort of open up with a salvo here that's just a back and forth. Yeah, some great stuff. Uh, just talking about somebody, uh, talking to somebody about this the other day. We were talking about the idea of, oh, yeah. of the concept of Pride Month and uh, how this month gets so much more attention than, say, other months that we assign to different cultures and groups. Uh, one thing I was mm-hmm. thinking was that everybody knows it's Pride Month because every business has gone out of their way to uh, to do so. But, you know, what is the month of August? What is the month of November? What is, you know, the uh, months tend to have these assigned, you know, special focuses, uh, whether it's culture, whether it's, um, you know, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing in any way, but the point is that this month probably gets more attention than any other month from from businesses, from entities, uh, as yeah. a celebration of something. And it's a little bit frustrating because it doesn't, of course, first of all, because of the, the sinful context to it, but also because of the fact that it's just not a very reasonable thing that we have, uh, and you said it well to say, uniquely American culture, uh, that we have grabbed this as a society and we have made this such a uh, contentious thing and made it such a uh, remarkably focused thing that it really is a it really is strange, you know. And as you said, in other societies, there's not nearly the focus on this that is found in U.S. culture. Well, and there's also, I think, the deliberate challenge to Christianity in this. There's a deliberate mocking of God, the 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 recontextualizing the rainbow, if you will, or even I think the term pride is probably a snubbing of the nose that pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs sixteen eighteen that I think that's one of the things that makes these discussions such minefields that there's it's sometimes it feels like the right answer is the is the war games answer the only way to win is not to play and I think for many Christians that's the conclusion that they've come to that they just kind of shut up and don't say anything about it and uh, try not to express too much anger over it I, I mentioned that when we were recording the man up podcast last week that really trying to control your anger 
not because I'm angry that people commit that sin any more than any other sin. It's just the the frustration of seeing it in my face when I know that it's a celebration of, of immorality. And I think one of the things that we have to come to terms with is, and I want to be careful how I say this, because, I mean, every year there's the charge that Christians are bigots and things like this, but we do need to come to terms with our own hypocrisy on this, that to a degree— this is an easy sin for us to single out because the likelihood of somebody being a self-identified Christian and committing that kind of that kind of sexual immorality pretty low, even though there are many denominations that are trying to skew that image uh, quite a bit, and that probably won't always be the case. But it's easy for us to single that out as the other person's sin. We don't have near the outrage over adultery or fornication or... We don't have near the outrage over over uh, divorce, okay? even though the Bible clearly says God hates divorce, that we do over this. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that it's almost universally another person's sin and not mine. And so can, can we talk about that just a little bit? How do, how do we deal with our own, you know, it's always better to clean your house before you go, and we are going to go unpack the other but before you go help somebody clean up theirs, it's always best to clean yours. How do we how do we deal with that kind of hypocrisy or the charge of hypocrisy? Yeah, and it's a fair charge. Um, let's first of all say this. It is appropriate that the world can call us hypocrites. Um, even though we think, well, wait a second, they're not righteous. Why, who do they who are they to judge us? The point of hypocrisy is that it is a charge that anybody can bring to say. I see an unfair balance of things. I've often said the best hypocrite detectors in the world are children. They instantly pick up on hypocrisy, but the world can pick up on hypocrisy. Um, And this is why Jesus gives us the instruction he does in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about making judgments. Uh, Some people misunderstand that passage. They think Jesus is saying it's wrong to judge. Jesus is saying it's wrong to judge unrighteously. He actually commands us to judge, and you can construe that out of this passage, but other statements are judge with righteous judgment. But the problem is Jesus in that statement of, of, the, uh, of the passage when he begins by saying, don't judge unless you're going to be judged. Well, we're all going to be judged. It's not that we can escape judgment by not judging. That's, that's uh, contrary to everything else Jesus says about judgment. Uh, but what we want to understand is that Jesus in that passage is saying that we need to have a judgment that's based on a righteous understanding. He says, by the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And we're all going to be judged by the same thing. So... Why is it that sometimes we can look at somebody else's sin and not examine our own? And this is his point here. Why do you look at a speck in somebody else's eye and you've got a log in your own? Um, mm-hmm. and, and we can reverse that. We could say, why do you look at the, the log in somebody else's eye when you still have a speck in your own? It makes a little less, it's a little less dramatic that way. But the point is, uh, before right. I am able to make a righteous judgment about somebody's conduct, I have to be in a righteous standing myself. A couple of reasons why. Number one, you know, if you went to somebody and said, hey, I'm, I'm here to help pull something out of your eye and you can tell that they have something problematic with theirs, they don't trust your judgment. So first and foremost, mm-hmm. if they don't trust your judgment, then there's a problem. But secondly, there's also the sense that if they don't have uh, confidence in uh, that judgment, they're also going to say, uh, I, you know, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I have no desire to to experience what you want not just a i don't trust you but i don't want to you know because because of your hypocrisy right and of course like well, i said let me put this back on go ahead go ahead 
No, no. I was just going to say, and this it brings us back to the last point to say, if we want to be effective, we have to have the right motivation. You know, we and that motivation right. is is made abundant whenever we're first and foremost examining ourselves. Let me put the text back on the screen because what you just said actually shows up at the end of that context in verse six, when he says, "Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet." and turn and tear you to pieces. When you stop, when you think about what he just said within the the context of the, within the context of use righteous judgment, part of using righteous judgment is going to be to stop and process how what you say is about to be received. And so that would that would by necessity cause us to stop and consider our own maybe hypocrisy in, in that, that, that am I the person that can make this statement, this holy statement, even though is it going to be received by the person in the state that they're in? You know, I use the illustration of the guys that were yelling over the megaphones the other day about people burning in hell. You stop and you think about that, that that message isn't going to be received. Whatever you thought your message, not you, but whatever they thought their message was at that point wasn't going to be received because of how it was being put out. Also, if I'm in the middle of a protest with a counter-protest, nothing I shout at the other side is going to do any good. And so for us to try to communicate the truth of God's Word, number one, our purpose has to be to communicate God's Word and not, not to try to change society or get something out of culture that we don't like. Number two... It's got to be done with sincerity. And number three, it's got to be done at a moment when it can be received. Because otherwise, I'm just provoking somebody. True. Yeah, false. that's what Jesus is saying here in verse six. He says, you're, um, if you're, you know, and, and like I said, we got to be careful. You know, swine is meant to be, you know, the brute beast. But the brute beast idea is a common one in the New Testament. It says the brute beast yeah. is the mindset of a person who's totally caught up in the flesh. They have no spiritual insight. They have no spiritual interest. Um, it doesn't mean they're always that way. Sometimes all of us are the brute beast, so to speak, the swine. But the point is, mm -hmm. is that Jesus is saying that somebody's totally caught up in the flesh. Your spiritual uh, value, the, the pearl of great price, the pearl that you offer, the spiritual judgment you're willing to share, uh, not only won't be received, it'll be destroyed. And then you'll be destroyed. And so Jesus is saying, don't, uh, those are the moments you don't share it. You, you don't bother. You know, we know Jesus, whenever mm. people uh, wouldn't receive him, didn't go to certain villages. You know, he didn't go to certain places. Uh, and it's important for us to understand right. that the scriptures are saying um, that when somebody has a hardness of heart, there's there's not only is there no value to preaching the gospel, there's a there's a negative value. Uh, you you yeah. risk. It's going to harden their heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And right. uh, you make it less yeah. likely that they'll receive it again. Well, and I think part of that, what you just said about people are not always in the mindset to receive, but they're also in the, and you said that in the antithesis or in the opposite way, that people aren't always in a mindset to be opposed to what we're trying to say. I, I think that's borne out in passages like maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul talks about those who will inherit the kingdom, and he says... Uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You know, part of this is realizing that, and this gets into the culture war aspect, and this is this is the part that gets kind of dicey if we're not careful. I don't mean you and I, I mean Christians. Everybody's got baggage. Everybody's got a past history with sin. Everybody who came to Jesus has something they have to put down and a cross they have to pick up. And realizing that means that if I engage myself in a war with culture to obliterate something from culture, you know, I, I don't like I don't like watermelon flavored ice cream. And I'm going to go on a culture war to obliterate watermelon flavored ice cream, then by necessity, I am creating an enemy of everyone who thinks that that watermelon-flavored ice cream defines them. Culture wars are dangerous. Let, let's, just, let's just be honest about that. Culture wars are dangerous. We talked about this in the last episode, and I, what you said needs a big echo, that, that oftentimes we are being whipped up into these kinds of emotional frenzies because our the companies that are driving these kinds of, of discussions, the media outlets, whether they be right-leaning or left-leaning, are trying to use us as a power base. It, it, it benefits them financially, just like we talked about the ESG score in the last episode, the, the envir environmental social governance score, that many of these companies that are out there promoting this aren't doing this because there are people that are people in that company that really, really strongly are passionate about this. It's because this is how they get access to lines of credit to keep going and keep producing. And so in many ways, we need to understand that our purpose is not to go out and change society. Our purpose is not to, to stamp out every single sin that's out there. Our purpose is to call sinners to Christ. You have the danger of hypocrisy. You have the danger of being manipulated by corporations. You have this danger that... Our kids are going to get swept up in this, and if you if you know the agenda of things like like jamming, like which is the the idea that in every instance, any type of disagreement is going to be presented as aggression. You ever heard the term jamming before, Brian? No, that's a new one to me. Okay, it comes from a book called After the Ball. It was written in the '90s, and it was about how the homosexual movement was going to to basically sweep across America. And they were going to promote allies. They were going to promote advocates. They were going to create social movements around it. One of them was jamming. It was the idea of, of making every – any time they could, they were going to spin any tactic or any story as if it was somehow an oppression against them, that they were an oppressed group. Well, that resonates with young people when they see it. And if we're out there speaking oppressively about these things, then we're actually aiding them. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And so when you have, you know, for instance, we, we were talking about the boycotts last, last week uh, when we were uh, on air. And we were talking about how those are dangerous for Christians to be involved in. In fact, you know, Christians are told not to be part of mobs and all of the points that we were making there. When it, when it comes right down to it, our culture wants us to, 
to be angry about this. Our culture wants us to believe that we are losing the war. And I want you to hear me carefully. We haven't lost the war. This is the generation where the war is won or lost. And I'm going to tell you how, how I know we're not losing the war. Because right now you have three companies, two of which I believe were Fortune 500, and two other companies that are beginning to circle the drain that are suffering so bad financially right now that it's making headline news day after day. You've got Disney, you've got Anheuser-Busch, you've got Target, now the Ford Motor Company. Just yesterday, uh, a very popular video game with young young men, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, decided they were going to jump on the woke transgender bandwagon, and all of a the sudden, they're suffering. Their whole fan base is turning against them, just like Anheuser-Busch's customer base was turning against them. We haven't lost this discussion. But I'm going to tell you how we will lose this discussion. If we make it about trying to change culture as opposed to trying to lead other people to Jesus. And I've seen this happen. I'm 46 years old. I've seen this happen a dozen or more times in my life where it seems like you're having a discussion. There's actually some momentum where people are waking up and saying things like, hey, they're targeting children. Maybe I don't want to be associated with this brand anymore. And Christians sort of go for the jugular rather than trying to show people, hey, here's how Jesus would respond to that. Let's talk to these people that are waking up to this and say, you know, there really is a better way to lead your life and sit down and have honest discussions with them. We go for anger. We go for frustration. We go for rebuke. We go for cancellation. And then all of a sudden the script is flipped and we are victimizing those who really have more power than we do. Yeah, it's a, it's that's how we lose. It's a great it's a great point. I, I, you know, I have a um, not a different perspective, but another direction on this that I think of too. I think one thing right. uh, that's really important for us to understand is that uh, uh, the concept of culture wars is sometimes bringing us to a mindset uh, that there is a win and lose in a culture battle, so to speak. And and to, yeah. to degree, there's there's uh, giving and taking and. I think sometimes Christians have this mindset that all we do is lose. Uh, let's let's take an issue like, you know, uh, race, um, which is always a, a, a careful one to jump into. Um, but I think... Oh, just roll yeah, another grenade under the I think the we tent, could right? probably agree <laughs> that things are better uh, um, in our society from a spiritual sense in how we uh, view race uh, racial situations than they were, say, 100 years ago. That even among brethren, mm -hmm. there were problems there that have actually... Uh, diminished. Uh, they're not gone, perhaps. I would stop short of saying that. Not not necessarily because I would stop short of saying that, but because I think a lot of people would. Uh, but they certainly have changed. They certainly have diminished. Uh, the circumstances that brethren would have experienced 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, uh, that's, a, that's a society plus. That's a positive swing in society that is a good thing that, uh, that changed for the better. And I think sometimes we mm -hmm. want to say society never changes for the better, but sometimes it does, but it goes back and forth. And, and honestly, mm -hmm. that wasn't a societal change that brethren led the charge in. That wasn't a societal change that uh, right. the church affected. In fact, we we probably lagged behind. Yeah, yeah that might be fair to say. Um, and But the bigger idea is things change all the time, and it may not have anything to do with us. We, we believe that there is a God who providentially acts in the world around us. So, so we see change. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see things... Uh, change back and forth sometimes. And sometimes we feel like, you know, we get caught up in the idea of a culture war and we've drawn into the idea that it's up to us to bring about a victory or failure when, yeah. when really we're not too substantial in that. 
uh, we as those who are in Christ aren't going to be too substantial beyond our That's right. personal point. You know, God isn't saying, hey, I want you to, uh, I'm going to equip the church to wage a culture war to win or lose. All we're equipped to do is to wage the war for the soul. Uh, and that's right. really all I'm, you and I, or any Christian is equipped to do. That's all we're able to do. Uh, and that's the thing that we're focused on. Absolutely. And I think one of the play, one of the things that we forget is when we go to a passage like Ephesians chapter six, Paul never says that our battlefield is out in the world. He says we're battling the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. What we have to realize is that our cultural warfare is not at the corner of Harbor and Disney way. For those of you who've been to Disneyland, you know exactly where that's at. It's it's in my heart. And that so my struggle is not with homosexuality. So it's easy for me to be angry about that sin. My struggle is not with divorce. It's easy for me to be angry about that sin. My struggle is not with adultery. My struggle is with anger. And when somebody points out, hey, you're you're giving into your anger a little bit, you know, that that tends to make me a little angry. And so how we approach this, whether it's seeing that it's not a cultural war, it's a matter of trying to lead others to Jesus, is crucial to, to whether or not our message is really effective. And we're not going to be effective if we don't wage our own spiritual warfare internally. So let's, let's get into... Uh, oh, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I think it's a great point, though. Uh, actually, let me go ahead and throw out Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, chapter ten and verse five, where Paul talks right, about. Give me just a second, I'll get uh, up on the yeah, screen. Yeah, verses four and five. Uh, Paul's talking about spiritual warfare there, and he says the weapons of our warfare—they're not carnal, they're not physical. You know, he says they're they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. They're spiritual things, in other words. But verse five is the verse that really grips me in the conversation that we're having here, Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5. He says, we are casting down arguments. Um, in other words, it's, it's an it's a intellectual process. Casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The second part of this really fits what you said. Bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Well, so what are we talking about? Every thought, bringing every thought into captivity? It's not about the idea that I'm I'm getting laws out there that outlaw certain things or other things. It's that I am, I am exercising self-control, the greatest battle that a Christian faces. I am exercising self-control and committing myself uh, to bringing myself in line uh, so that I mm -hmm. can, uh, you know, I can punish my own disobedience. I can bring my own disobedience out of, uh, into control. Well, one of the things that's, that's interesting about that verse is he goes on to talk about punishing disobedience there. He's not talking about punishing disobedience in the outside world. He's talking about punishing disobedience in the church, that if you aren't engaged in spiritual warfare, if you are so busy out there with cultural warfare and, and fighting like, like people and you're, and you're being divisive to your brethren and destroying your brethren— that's what he's coming to punish. That, that's what Paul is, is concerned about there. Yeah. And— we need to take that to heart because, and it goes back to what you said last week on the program, that these companies are trying to turn us into a power base. Basically, we're we're Duracell for their economic engine. If they can keep us angry and they can keep us watching and they can sell more advertising, that's all they care about. That no matter how correct in our minds the opinions of the people at Fox News or the Daily Wire are, we to them are an audience just like the people that listen to our podcast are an audience and I want them to listen. I want them to subscribe. I want them to watch. Well, I, we want to communicate true things, but 
in the end of the at the end of the day, if I've got a company out there that's trying to whip me up in fervor to them, then what I'm really accomplishing is not God's ends, it's their ends. But let's talk about let's talk about this from the aspect of sin and homosexuality. That uh, I mentioned that the the idea of of the Pride Month and the, the recontextualizing the rainbow. I don't know if recontextualizing is the right word or not. It's more like a more like a claiming, but the recontextualizing of the rainbow, even the word Pride, which the Bible, the Bible, you know, just shows that Pride is a sin. That how do we understand homosexuality? Is, is it sinful? Does the Bible can the Bible does the Bible say that it's sinful? If so, how do Christians need to talk about it and communicate about it? Yeah, what what great questions. You know, uh, first and foremost, let's let's kind of start off by saying it, it's not a sin because we don't like it, which of course uh, is probably the judgment that most people make about what is sin and what's not. Um, people just people just like to you know kind of feel like oh, if I don't like it, it must be a sin, and yeah. and that's a that's a terrible mindset. You know, uh, what mm. we're supposed to do is we're just supposed to. Uh, discern spiritual things with spiritual tools. We're supposed to make understandings about that. So it's so our concept of homosexuality is supposed to be within the spiritual mind, something that we're able, number one, to categorize, is it a sin or is it not? Number two, right. does it have uh, additional consequences or does it not? Uh, because sometimes sin does, you know, divorce and remarriage is one that we talk about a lot, having uh, additional consequences, you know, lots of sins have consequences mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, breaking the law. Um are there are there consequences we have to be appraised of spiritually as well or not? So so starting off there, the Bible gives us some pretty straightforward statements about homosexuality. Um, you loosely mentioned First Corinthians chapter six, uh, and that's a good place for us to kind of start when the Apostle Paul is talking about works of the flesh, uh, works of the flesh. First Corinthians chapter six, uh, as he's talking about these things, and he says these are the things that prevent you from entering heaven. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing the. Uh, statement there he, when he says uh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, and here's our list, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, uh, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so here we have this list of people um, that, uh, and next verse says that the Corinthians themselves were, and it sounds as though he's saying every one of these things, someone was one of them, you know, some, someone was mm-hmm. one of them. Now there are yeah, two, that, that's how I take that. Yeah. Too. There are two terms here that are used that, uh, reach out to homosexuality, uh, uh, effeminate. As I said, I, I know the new King James, King James uses the word sodomite. Uh, and, and there probably are describing two different concepts. Um, and there's maybe two ways to appraise this. Number one, in times past, in the ancient world, there was a distinction among some between somebody who might be what we would use the word bisexual, somebody uh, and somebody who was purely homosexual. In other words, they were attracted exclusively to the same sex, or they might go back and forth. Um, you know, it was uh, it was the case that uh, that was that was a distinction in Roman culture about people like that. Uh, kind of ironic in their society, they viewed bisexuality, somebody who, you know, um, you know, uh, saw uh, was attracted to both genders. Uh, they viewed that as less as, as not a deplorable thing, but they did kind of look down on homosexuality. So it's kind of interesting how the Romans might have looked at the Greeks were different. 
But there's also the view that these concepts are effeminate, meaning the person who, a uh, man who dresses like a woman, which you might bring in transgender mm-hmm. as a, 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 a worthwhile way of translating that term as well. Um, and I, honestly, not being a Greek scholar, I'm going to hesitate to jump out into that too much. But I do think it's worth noting uh, that there are a lot of people that want to tell us these terms are translated accurately. Uh, I see a lot of people. And they're never biblical right. scholars. They're always, and they always are, uh, LGBTQ uh, advocates of some kind, and they'll try to say, right. "Well, there, there's a biblical error here." Uh, never get well, your a- never get your biblical uh, advice from people that aren't biblical believers. That might be my recommendation. Yeah, I mean, there was a video that was released. I think it was middle of last year, called 1946, that was about the supposed agenda where arsenicoitai, which which is which literally means man bed that it was previously translated until 1946 pedophile which is untrue arsenicoitai has never meant pedophile that um it wasn't at all in fact i think that's the word i'm not allowed to say that i didn't say <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> say it edit that out yeah yeah i did say it. now i've said it twice should have just said it the first yeah. time no that was the association in fact i'm gonna i'm gonna stick a video in right here for our our viewers and you know, listeners, you'll just have to annoy with the you'll just have to be annoyed with the singing that goes on here. But this is, I believe, she's Episcopalian. Uh, she is an Episcopalian priest that is singing about how that was the word homosexual was never in the Bible. I wonder why they made that change. Oh, the word homosexual was never in the Bible. It wasn't in the Bible till 1946, and the word it replaced translates to pedophile. Wonder why they did it? Must well, be a mystery. Well, the fact of the matter is, none of that's true. It's always meant men who bed men, and that is not a value judgment. That's not saying that's worse than any other sin. That's just saying that's one of the sins that's listed. And I think sometimes the fact that we stress it as the ultimate value judgment. The same thing happens with Romans 1 when people go over there is is Christians want to single out homosexuality in this really long list of sins. It's It's not pronouncing harm on anyone. It's just saying here's the problem. Man gave themselves over to all of these sins, and sin leads to death. And the only and it's setting up the equation in the book of Romans that Jesus is the solution to sin. Now, next week, I think we're going to be talking about providing this this video doesn't get us kicked off YouTube. And to, I may have to put this one up on Rumble, <laughs> but providing this doesn't get us kicked off YouTube, uh, next week we're going to be talking about inherited sin, and and we're going to get into some of that in Romans about whether or not we are born in sin, but. The purpose of e- of both of these passages is not to single out homosexuality as a particularly disgusting sin or something that Paul really, really hated. It was, in the case of Romans 1, ranked with people who were disobedient to parents, something that we wouldn't think is a big deal. In fact, disobedience to par- disobedient to parents is celebrated in almost every teenage movie I can think of since Footloose <laughs> and probably before that. This isn't talking about singling out any one sin, it's saying this is how far people got from God, that we kept moving toward death because sin equals death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't care what your flavor of sin is. Sin is death, and but he gave Jesus as the answer. And if we focus on how much we hate that sin rather than Jesus is the answer to this, and you can come out of this sin if you want to, you can repent 
you can come away from it if you choose to, then we're really not serving the message of God at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's an important point uh, for us to for us to try to understand. Um, and as an aside, one thing you might do <clears throat> if you ever do hear these comments and people trying to uh, disrupt the concept of what the Bible says, remember Matthew chapter nineteen. Jesus in Matthew nineteen is telling us where the appropriate sexual relationship that God designed belongs, and he says it is when one man mm -hmm. marries one woman. And that's the only place that God says that the sexual relationship is authorized. Um, anybody, you know, it's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever really deals with that. Uh, whenever they try to say, well, the word homosexual, yeah. you know, whatever you want to say. Um, let's go back to the thing that God says is okay. God says this is where sexuality is okay. And yes. outside of marriage, which is what the list of 1 Corinthians 6 is all about, uh, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, all the sexual relationships that exist outside of marriage, and Jesus is defining marriage as one man and one woman for life, outside of that, those are sexual relationships that will lead us, uh, uh, will prevent us from inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And so what we what we need to see is homosexuality right, it, is just one of several things that is outside of marriage. Absolutely. A absolutely. Is, is, is it just one more relationship that's outside of marriage. And one of the things that I want to stress, and this gets back to the idea of, are we trying to lead others to Christ or are we engaged in a culture war? Essentially what Romans 1 is saying is, here's why you don't have a hope that goes beyond this life, is you cannot be in these things and have hope that uh, in a in an eternal life, that, that you're, you're dead at the end of this and you go to judgment. That those who have Christ don't have don't have that predicament. We don't have to be afraid of death. Perfect love casts out fear. First John four. That we don't have to be afraid of death because we have died with Christ, been buried with Him, and 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 been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, according to First I'm sorry, Romans chapter six. And this is becoming a study of Romans really quickly. But when you see that, what we need to make sure that we're using Bible words in Bible ways. And that we're not using the Bible to punch people in the mouth because this is not calling. This is not a endorsement of the Westboro Baptist Church by any by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I'm going to tell you, God is as angry about them misusing his word as he is about any of the other sins listed right. in Romans chapter one. Yeah, uh, Kind of ironic. Uh, Westboro Baptist Church, Calvinist, they teach, you know, once saved, always saved. They teach, you know, uh, original sin, all false doctrines, all things that they're condemned by God for. So truth of the matter is, you yeah. know, that's the that's the characteristic uh, that a lot of times a lot of people are guilty of. Uh, and as you said, Paul makes that statement yeah. in Romans chapter 14. Don't be the person who's quick to point out other people's sins while you yourself are committing them. You know, that's uh, and that's Romans chapter uh, three as well or uh, two as well. Well, and that's why we have to be careful with the things that we're saying, because this is where this charge of being bigoted or hypocritical comes from, is that some anybody can sit down with the Bible, and they can read Romans 1, and if they just keep reading, not in one of the worst things that ever happened uh, for the average person was learning to study the Bible by verses as opposed to context— you know, verses are great for finding things, but verses are not the ends of thoughts. Chapters are not even the ends of thoughts in the Bible. You actually have to start reading in Romans 1 and go all the way to the beginning of Romans 12 to get Paul's entire thought here. And that is not the condemnation of anyone and the calling for, for harm to come to anyone, but that everybody needed Jesus 
And if you found Jesus, you need to live like a living sacrifice to him. And so much harm. And somebody that's that's that practices homosexuality can pick up the Bible and can say, well, you're using this hypocritically. That I don't see you out there condemning disobedient to parents with protests. I don't see. And so that's why these culture wars are so dangerous. That That's why getting sucked into these things. But one of the areas where I think we have to acknowledge that that we need to be involved. Well, hang on. Before we get into that, let, let me get, get let you speak on 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 the bigoted and the hypocritical for a minute, because I I just kind of took that. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> what else do we say about that? Uh, one of the things about being a Christian is we have to uh, be careful that we're not guilty of this uh, this statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter two. He says, "There's no excuse if you pass judgment." And that for that which you can judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. If, right. uh, uh, there was a there was a story a few years ago um, where back when there was a big debate about gay marriage, that they were saying one of the big protesters against gay marriage had been divorced about three or four times. Um, let's understand this. Uh, mm-hmm. If I am guilty, and, and it says Paul says specifically, you're guilty of the same things. If I'm guilty of sexual immorality. I don't get to tell, you know, that when I say to other people I'm guilty of sexual immorality, I'm I'm rendering the judgment of God, um, you know, in some way unfair, unfairly, you know. And judgment of God, he says in verse yeah. 2, is according to truth to those who practice such things. So if I'm practicing sexual immorality, God judges that. You know, God is uh, judges me and judges that other person. Um, and I'm not going to escape the judgment of God if I'm, you know, trying to escape that. So... This concept of you know I'm gonna I'm gonna condemn the homosexual, but not the person who divorced and remarried, which Jesus said is adultery, sexual immorality. Yeah. Um, then I may have a problem, you know, and that's something I think a lot of times we have to be careful mm-hmm. about. I I remember when when the you know uh, uh, gay marriage first became a conversation years ago. I really didn't do many lessons on it because I said you know more. Christians are going to stumble over fornication than this. You know, more Christians are going to stumble over divorce than this. And these are the things we need to particularly be talking about. And you kind of said at the beginning of our time, these are, these are subjects that it's easy to score some points for if you want to use them in the pulpit, but you're not necessarily going to equip people for overcoming sin in their life uh, necessarily. Now I do think that's changed. Yeah. Or or even engaging yes. in honest yeah. discussion yeah. with people who no, are entangled say, in that I do sense. think that's changed. And I think that's maybe a subject we're going to come back to here in a few minutes. I do think we do have a generation now that doesn't see it the same way that perhaps our generation did, that it's become so open and acceptable, which, which, which was a goal of this agenda. So this agenda has accomplished at least that to make it a little more acceptable. So that we do need to have conversations mm-hmm. more often than we used to about these things, but we have to do so without hypocrisy. That's the thing that we lose all of our credibility and standing. All of the strength of our argument is taken away if we do so with uh, with any kind of hypocrisy. And bigotry is a type of hypocrisy. If, I, if it can be demonstrated that I am unfairly showing a prejudice, and here's James chapter 2 when James says we're supposed to uh, have the faith of Jesus Christ without uh, any kind of uh, 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 I just forgot the word he used there. Um, uh, hold partiality. Uh, we are to hold the faith yeah. of Jesus Christ without partiality. In other words, we're supposed to, you know, 
condemn sin in a blanket way. We're supposed to uphold righteousness in a blanket way. If we show partiality, uh, if we hold our faith with partiality, then we're doing um, we're doing unwise. Uh, James chapter two, up through verse nine. Yeah, and, and partiality is just another way of saying yes. inconsistency. And one one of the things that I think we're missing is we're we're so focused on the agenda of maybe trying to push push homosexuality that we that what's happened is the in our culture is the normal is the normalizing of sin that is sexual in nature that isn't homosexuality that we don't question because we're so focused on the the uh, the homosexual agenda working its ways into the entertainment of our teenagers or, or our young kids even, that we don't notice that we've just readily accepted um, romantic entanglements of sexual natures that yeah. are heterosexual in the same kinds of cartoons and in the same kinds of of, uh, yeah, I think movies. I think that that is our adversary's great tool. I think his great tool has been to yeah. provoke us with greater sin, so that we're accepting of what we might think of as lesser sin. Um, you know, he provokes us with drugs, so uh -huh. that we'll accept alcohol. He provokes us with um, homosexuality, so that we'll accept fornication. And I think it's a it's a brilliant tactic on his part that we're willing to you know to to swallow other things that are just as deadly. By provoking us uh, into a you know into a barrier of hostility against something that that actually is beyond what it is that we're supposed to be facing, our our frontier of battle, we're moving it forward to in, encroach and, and to accept things that are that are ungodly uh, in order to get closer to this other foe that we perceive when we should be drawing a line that draws all of those things as our adversary. Yeah, I use this illustration. I think this was in a private conversation the other day that we were having where it wasn't until I became a parent that I noticed how much of the rock music I listened to growing up was about sex and having sex and where to have sex. And and you know, it seemed like love songs at the time. There was one, uh, I think it was by the group Extreme, saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. If you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. It's basically you know, a man telling a young lady that is obviously not his wife that if she really wanted to show him that she loved him, she would sleep with him. And it was set to a nice, uh, very slow guitar ballad. It was wonderfully uh, composed, but nobody got angry about it. And I, <laughs> strangely enough, I even heard that played at a wedding once. <laughs> that, <laughs> that... We don't realize exactly what we're doing in yeah. our inconsistency. You know, it's, I don't want sex in my kid's cartoon, period. I, I don't want characters dating each other or, you know, Google, you know uh, ogling. Each other. They can Google, Google each other. <laughs> I don't want them ogling each other. I don't want them objectifying one another. I don't want to see... Uh, I remember there was a big controversy last, I think, a year before last, when the second Space Jam movie came out, that they had they had toned down Lola Bunny's attributes because she was objectified. That's weird. If men are objectifying a cartoon rabbit, that's weird. But 
I don't want sex in my kids' cartoons. Yeah. And the dev- and it's the slow boil. The devil has put us in the slow boil. Now, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're constantly told that we've lost this culture war. In fact, somebody sent me a video the other day of, of, a, trans, of, of, a, of a transgendered person, person who thinks that they're transgendered, basically trying to do a low-key threat of, you're not going to stop us. We haven't lost the moment, but we're going to if we're not careful. If we lost the moment, then you wouldn't see, as I said before, Disney and Target and Ford and some of these video game companies. You wouldn't see them circling the drain right now with Anheuser-Busch. You wouldn't see this if we had lost the movement. This isn't happening because, because Christians in mass have quit participating. It's happened because the American, the American public got a culture shock. We really are targeting children with this. And that's the thing that we need to be aware of. That's where that discussion you were talking about, about how this is going to be more relevant in the future than maybe it was in the past, because we do have a generation of kids that grew up hearing in the school system and in their entertainment that they needed to accept this. Well, now they're questioning their sexuality or they're questioning what the Bible says, and they're wanting that to change. And there are denominations who will say that it has changed. So how do we speak about this without Again, losing the culture war without getting involved in this thing that's that's neither a win. Well, nor a and lose. again, yeah, or can and only again, be a I, lose. I really struggle with the very idea that there is a, a concept of culture war on something like this. Um, because I, I think you said it well. The, these things are a distraction. Let's talk about cohabitation between men and women. That's going that's going through the roof. Oh, sure. I yeah, mean, the basis yeah, right, of every right, sitcom, right? right? Uh, and and the whole concept is that has become so normative in our society. I just made up that word normative. You're welcome to patent it. Um, it's things that are normal. You have to say okay, it two okay. more times I'll before say you can own it. Five times at some point in the show. Uh, it's become such an accepted, oh, normative uh, concept that men and women live together outside of marriage, sometimes without now without even the intention of getting married. That that I saw the statistics say it it is more likely for people to live together than to ever get married. Um, that that now we've reached a point uh-huh. where we're living together outside of marriage has surpassed marriage as the common uh, household type. That ought to be blowing up our brains. That ought to be the kind of thing that we're saying. Well, and I saw a statistic the other day that said only about 60% of people will ever be married. Yeah, wow, wow. And that's dropping. Because uh, because men are swearing off marriage because of of sort of the... the, uh, and we're going to do an episode on this, but the toxic masculinity myth, the idea that that uh, men need to bow down to women because they've been oppressive for so long, that they're, that only about 60% of people are going to get married now. And that number is going down and down and down because we have normalized this kind of behavior where sex is free and easy and cheap. Well, that takes away one of the one of the the driving factors behind procreation. And that is uh, the idea of having, having certainty in, in the children that you're raising kind of thing. And what you, where you end up with it in this is that we have normalized a behavior. And now the consequences of we're starting to wake up to in our society and realize young people aren't getting married. In fact, the idea that we have, have taken a pill and it's had consequences that we didn't understand because we were told that it was good for us. And, and I remember the uh, the um, the questions I got asked before Lauren and I got married, because it was that was sort of at the, you know, 20 years ago when it was becoming normal to cohabitate before you got married. And somebody said, well, 
it's like test driving a car. I thought, man, that's a really dumb remark. You, you need to try her out before you get married. And I thought, I hope she never hears you say that because she will end you, number one. But number two, that's the person that you're going to marry is not going to stay the person that you married. We hopefully all mature. We hopefully all grow. And if you're trying to to ease yourself into this commitment, then you're not ready to make right. a commitment at all. Right. Is how I would look at that. Yeah, great stuff. Um, so so like I said, uh, what what we're kind of doing is we're fighting. Uh, you know, there, it, there's no doubt that there is a battle to be fought here. The spiritual war of ideas yeah. is meant to be fought over this issue. But there is a far more dangerous, closer enemy that too many people aren't fighting, you know. Um, but the bigger idea is, you know, that, that that this concept of, you know, this is the battle we've got to fight. The battle we've got to fight is for not not in the society around us. It's in community or in family or in neighbors, you know, that, that we're trying to win souls. Mm -hmm. And that's the dilemma that we have to have, uh, the mindset that we have to have. And we lose credibility when we become too caught up in a culture war. We lose credibility because the problem with culture yeah. war is that a lot of times it drags in and we drag in allies that aren't really our allies. We have a fellowship that's not really fellowship. We have a relationship that really isn't one that's good. And we don't want to be caught up with that. Well, and I don't want to get caught up in a battle anyway, because I want to have a discussion with people across the kitchen table. That, yeah. Well, I'm thinking of battle like Paul yeah, uses it. Yeah. I want to tear down their thinking. I want to. Well, and I, and I just want to. And that's why I said that. I wanted to clarify that yeah. because. The, the battle that we're fighting, again, is not the culture war. Culture war is a recipe for losing. But I think one area, and this may have to become two episodes, uh, um, or I'll have to do some look at paring it down. But one of the areas where I think people do want some guidance is how do they talk to their children about this? We don't want to raise a, a group of children that are, that are a generation of children that feel like they have to protest or, or do those things. But we also don't want them to succumb to the devil's wiles here. And you and I have, have known Christians that have grown up in households that were God-fearing households, that because of the influence of culture, largely in the later high school and early, early college years, wanted to try some of this out. And they began to accept the notion of, of this is a persecuted people that has no voice in society, so I'll be the voice for them. And some even, some even began to participate in the sin itself. So... How do we talk to our kids about this? How do we engage them in a way that that uh, obviously doesn't – we don't want them to be frightened about the kinds of, of morality that we're bringing them in uh, up in, but we do want them to be, I think, cognizant of the danger of the world that we live in? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm asking so you because you've raised your kids. You know, mine's still young, yeah. so I'm taking notes. Uh, so, so the real – important idea that we first of all have to settle on is that there's a lot of times where we kind of think of sin as can I, i'm going to use my coin word normative or non-normative oh you own words, it now i do <laughs> so in other words um you know something that is you know uh, 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 you know edgy or unpleasant it's it's easy to say hey you stay away from that you know uh it, drugs are a great example because you know you can you can say oh drugs are bad kids you shouldn't do that uh, there's a spiritual negative truth about drugs that we ought to be teaching by the way yeah. drugs are being normative uh, uh normalized would be a better word but i gotta use my word uh we, drugs are being we live in portland they're probably being thing. normative too that's right that's right yeah they're gonna love my word they were normalized a long time ago yeah 
so so that one that's another one that we're seeing the big changes on. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we just want to approach things as this is just awful and that's all you need. And so the point here is we don't talk to the new generation in terms of this is just naturally wrong. You should be able to tell this because that's not true anymore. Right. They it has been so it is so normalized that uh, that that they don't right. know. So you have to have this discussion based on the same way you would have the discussion of living with somebody before marriage or divorce or pornography or things that society are saying, those are okay, you know, drinking, those are okay, you know, and, and people make that choice. And what you're going to be doing is instead you're going to be saying, let me show you what, what, what God says about right. this and where, where God wants you to stand. Um, don't approach it from a, they're just going to figure this out standpoint, because that's not true right. anymore. You know, it might've been true once. It's not true now. And you have to accept that. You cannot cannot close your eyes to the fact that uh, the, the generation coming up is not going to see homosexuality any different than divorce or living together before yeah. marriage or, you know, many of the things, like I said, that, that we, we categorize, that Paul would have categorized in this case. We have to step up and say, okay, right off the top, um, you know, you're going to have friends that are gay. Uh, you're going to have, you know, coworkers that are gay. Uh, those are just the, you know, that's the world you live in. You're not going to leave the world. Jesus said, I'm not here to take you out of the world. Um, you know, you're, because you won't have any influence in the mm -hmm. world. So you're going to see those things. Um, we can't, you know, I, I, you know, when I was growing up, I remember my mom saying, well, I don't want you to go over to so-and-so's house because his parents divorced and, you know, uh, kind of the comment of an unscriptural divorce and remarriage. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't want you over there. And, you know, oh, okay. And, and of course that ended as, as more and more that became the common thing. Yeah. And that we're now battling these things, not with that that nice social barrier that helped us a little bit. Now we have to battle it purely from the word of God. We have to have that conversation of this is what God says is right. This is what the world says is right. Mm -hmm. And we're on the side of God, not on the side. Well, of and God. it might even be based on your earlier comments that that comfortable social barrier was actually hurting us because it was easy to see it as us versus them as opposed to this is a sin that people are struggling with, just like I might know somebody that struggles with adultery and has had struggles with adultery, or I might know somebody who has struggles with with honesty or pornography. This is a sin that people are struggling with, and yeah. that there is a call to repentance, but when it comes to our children, we have to acknowledge that, and I think you said it brilliantly, that this is part and parcel with a whole bunch of other sexual sins that God talks about. And it's, it's not, I can't speak to it as something that makes me angry. Now there may be some context culturally where I can talk about that and I can say, you know, the fact that it's flaunted makes me angry. I know that there was a YouTube video circulating from a pride parade. I think it was in San Francisco where, where a, a man was, figuratively nailed to a cross while another man was writhing around him. And I mean, that's directly, and this, this group was being invited to the pride night of the LA Dodgers that, I mean, that's disgusting that that's, that's blasphemous. That is just so many, so much is that, a provocation that it is looking for a response. And I think we have to teach our children that when you see provocation, the best thing that you can do is try not to be provoked by it because you take the power away from them. And when you give into it, 
you give them power. When I respond in anger, then I give them power. When I don't respond the way that they anticipate responding, then they they look like the bigots as opposed to me, a white, heterosexual, Christian male. That the reality of it is part of this is joined to the undermining of the American male. And that that's part of it, is trying to destroy the image of the American male. And there are political reasons why that's expedient for some people. There are social reasons why that's expedient for some people. There are, but this is not going to get better. And if our response is to be angry and easily provoke now, it's only going to get worse. That the best thing that you can do in response to any of this when it comes to your children is, number one, like Brian said, teach them that this is part of a greater lesson on sexual morality that God teaches. And we need to understand, and I've said this on many programs, usually man up, when you think it's right to start talking about you're talking to your kids about sex and sexual relations and what God permits and what he prohibits and the confines that he wants it, that he wants us to engage in those behaviors. And the minute you think you're ready to start having your conversations with them, you need to, and that the ball game's about to begin, you need to realize that the devil's already got a runner on second. He's been having that conversation with them a long time before. And that's why he wants us angry about the homosexual movement uh, being part of our culture and our and our entertainment. He wants us angry about those things because we haven't been paying attention to what he's been doing, you know, over here. Yeah. And so that needs to be part of it. But also part of this discussion has got to be, how do I show people Jesus in the middle of it? If I'm going to have a discussion with somebody about their behavior, be it adultery or fornication or homosexuality or, or that, can I peacefully, lovingly, joyfully show them Jesus? And you know what? If they don't accept it, I can still treat them like a human being. I can still be just as kind to them as I would any other sinner who's engaged in any other sin. And that's really where we have to where we have to find our foot that has to be part of the conversation and i'm going to tell you guys uh, well this isn't man up i'm going to tell my audience our audience that that has been the missing piece of this conversation all along and until that is the main focus of our effort we're going to continue to be involved in a culture war that we can't win because it's the wrong battle and the wrong battlefield yeah, that's a great point. Um, one of the things you, you said to me or said a moment ago that really struck me uh, about the nature of those kinds of conversations, uh, they can't be angry conversations. You know, right. I know we, we get angry over sin, but, you know, one of the things you, you and I talked about recently in another uh, another show was the idea that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Amen. Uh, let that thought resonate for a second. The anger of man, my getting angry even over sin is not going to accomplish God's purpose. Uh, so having these conversations in anger, uh, being angry because, you know, because of the nature of these sins is not, is going to not going to be successful. You've said it several times that, that we're provoked a lot, you know, and the world yeah. wants to provoke us because if it can get us angry, we cannot accomplish God's righteousness. We cannot convict others. We can't come across as reasonable as, you know, as, as the superior answer as soon as anger introduce, is introduced into the conversation, we have lost that battle. 
Amen. Well, this is going to be an hour and a half episode if I don't split it into two or cut a bunch out. And there are some that I could probably, I was probably a little repetitive that I can, I can probably cut some of that out. But I do want to give you some, the last word, closing thoughts here. Yeah, it's a, you know, this is important. Uh, the things we're talking about, uh, obviously we live in a world that wants to paint a picture that Christians are bigots. Um, but we are people that make good choices. And and to some degree, we, we're supposed to have a discernment and a judgment. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to make righteous judgments. Um, don't believe for a second that the world doesn't make judgments. Uh, yeah. That's that's one of the big lies of the world. They judge all the time, too. You have to judge. You mm-hmm. know, um, if you, you put in front of me a, a bologna sandwich that's uh, the bread is moldy and uh, it's slimy, I'm not going to eat it because I have judgment. You know, I'm going to say that's probably not healthy. You know, you tell your children, don't get in the van with the stranger. Have judgment. You know, um, obviously, we want to have judgment. Don't believe a second that we're not supposed to have judgment. We're supposed to have righteous judgment. Well, tonight I'm going to put brisket in front of you because you're coming over. (laughs) That's right. I am going to eat that brisket, and I a lot of times don't even look at it. That's good judgment. That's not a good example. (laughs) But the point is, you know— don't don't believe for a second that the world doesn't judge. We all judge. We yeah. have to make judgment. We have to make righteous judgment. Anger is not a righteous judgment. Uh, the things that make us angry, sure, you know, sin can make us angry, but if we're if we're basing our presentation on anger, we lose instantly. Mm-hmm. It is it is lost if that's what it is that provokes us to our uh, to our conversation. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Don't let the devil win by making you angry, and don't let him provoke you into unrighteous judgment and realize that everybody in the world's making judgments, and the best voice that we can ever be is one who calls others to Jesus. So let's keep that in mind, and for all of us here at Biblically Speaking, for both Brian and I, we want to thank you for spending this time with us, and as always, have a good day, and God bless.